Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. My name is Julian Carl, CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group, and I'm really pleased to bring you this episode today because in today's interview, I speak with Chris Baker. Chris Baker is the managing director of a consulting firm called Callista Consulting. And I think this is a, li- a little bit of a different type of interview because we actually partner with Callista Consulting when we are looking to do lean programs with some of our clients. So it is a fantastic interview where Chris really starts to explore all, all the value of lean and, and how to take it from being just some theory into having some sort of practical application. So have a listen and once again, would love to hear what you think. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Well, welcome, Chris, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. So uh, happy to have you on the show so that the listeners have a little bit of context about who you are and what you do. Are you able to just share a little bit about uh, Chris Baker? Yeah, thanks, Julian, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to chat. I've been looking forward to it. Um, Yeah, so I'm a a lean practitioner, uh, a consultant and coach. I spend a lot of time working with organisations of all different types to improve their delivery of value to their customers and improve their performance. It's a variable thing. It depends which particular type of organisation you're you're working for as to what that performance is. But we help them look at the way that they work. We help them look at the way they communicate with teams and how they can work in a better way in the future to create more value for the teams. And if they're a commercial enterprise, along with that comes uh, greater revenues and greater profits as well, along with some other important uh, additional things such as improved job satisfaction and cultural morale for their teams as well. So that's, that's a, in a nutshell what I do. Um, I do that through training and I do that through on-site consulting programs, working with organisations to take the training from uh, the theoretical classroom side of things and into actual practical work. Along with that comes a lot of support, particularly for middle managers who are often set the targets of creating these improvements. So I would spend a lot of time coaching, particularly at that middle management level. Fantastic. And so um, I just just want to give a bit of context to all the the listeners out there about our relationship. So Synergen and Callista have decided to enter into a, a joint venture where we want to introduce lean ideas and concepts to our our client base and so we've structured a four level lean certification model I suppose one of the better thing and it starts with a, a lean professional moves into a lean practitioner works into a lean leader and then ends up being a, a lean champion and one of the things why I thought this would be really good for the listeners is that I really want to explore lean because Chris is really, really passionate about lean. And for those of you that know me, I'm very, very passionate about all things leadership. And I thought it was a good opportunity just to start the conversation and really, really start uh, looking at how lean might be the, the way 
forward for you as a, as, as a, as a leader in an organisation and also give me the opportunity to really grill Chris on, on what it all means in terms of how you apply lean practices in, in, in a leadership context because it's something which I'm sort of at a very high level familiar with, you know, basic concepts like 5S and things like that, but beyond that, it's not an area which I've, I've decided to build my expertise. So just wanted to put that out there for all the listeners and I'm hoping that you're going to get a real sense of value from this conversation. So having put the disclaimer out there, Chris, why should someone consider lean as a leadership model? Right. Well, that's a great question. Look, from, from my perspective, if I want to give a simple high-level answer to that, first of all, I think leaders that have a strong knowledge of lean and, and a good uh, sense of using lean in a practical way can do two important things. They're going to have teams that hit better performance targets. So they're going to outperform teams that have leaders without that strong lean knowledge. And they're going to do that because of the way that lean works to drive performance. The other thing they're going to have is teams that have a higher level of job satisfaction and a really strong teamwork culture, a very good uh, way of working together that shows respect for each other, that shares ideas and that works to put improvements in place. And there's a lot of really good learning in, in modern times about psychology of creating uh, motivation amongst teams and creating greater co cooperation uh, amongst team members. And it's around connecting teams to the purpose. Why do they exist? It's about supporting teams to become really good at what they do. So pursuing mastery, if you like. And it's about delivering autonomy to teams. You know, gone are the days really where a manager's job was to make sure that people were kept busy or to come in and allocate work to people. These days, we're expecting a lot more from our managers and we're expecting them to, to drive improvements and achieve higher performance goals. Using the lean tools and techniques really helps them to actually do that in practice. I think most managers, if you ask them, know that they need to, to delegate downwards, they know they need to empower teams, they know they need to engage teams. But when you ask them how they actually do that, maybe some of the, the understanding of the practical methods falls away. And I find that the, the strategies that sit there with Lean, the tools that are part of Lean, are extremely powerful ways for managers to drive that engagement, provide teams with empowerment, help them improve at what they do and give them some great challenges as well. So just in case some of our listeners aren't, aren't uh, familiar with the, with the term Lean, are you able to take them back and just give them a little bit of historical context and a bit of an oversight in, in what it all is. And then I want to delve a bit deeper into some of the tools which you think leaders can apply to really drive those performance improvements. Yeah, of course. So for those that uh, perhaps haven't come across Lean before, and there are still many who haven't had uh, a lot of exposure to it in Australia, it's the way I describe it is it's it's a body of knowledge that surrounds productivity and performance. The the term itself it's not an acronym. It, it just stands for 
you know, lean, not having a lot of waste, not having a lot of fat there. So creating organisations that are very focused on creating value for their customers. The term was derived from a set of authors, Waymac, Bruce and Jones, who, who did some groundbreaking research in the, the 1980s and 1990s, looking at where productivity had got to and some of the, the power shifts that had moved across from uh, the United States across to manufacturers in Japan during that, that preceding couple of decades. So they coined the term. Now, whether it's a great name for it or not is, is kind of beside the way now because we've moved on and that is the term. But if you think of it as just a body of knowledge that supports productivity, and the way I often describe it is there are really three parts to it. There's strategies to minimise wasteful activity. And Lean categorises wasteful activity into a number of different types. And uh, if we were running a training course, you know, at this juncture, I'd probably run through what those different types of waste are and define them for people. And then we would look at ways in which you can start to minimise those particular waste types. And if we were to describe all those things, they would all be things that people would say, well, that's normal. I see those things in every workplace. And, and that's very true. These wastes exist everywhere. It's simply a matter of us challenging them and beginning to recognise them for what they are as activities that don't actually create any value for our customers. There's another important layer of lean thinking, though, and that sits next to the strategies to reduce waste uh, or things that you don't want to do. And this other section is things that you do want to do. It's behaviours that support high performance. And there are a variety of models out there. Uh, when we teach lean, we usually focus in on the... the the few, five or half a dozen pillars of behaviour that are really powerful in supporting high performance. The final thing, if you like, it's like a triumvirate, um, is a suite of tools that we can then deploy to actually put these strategies to minimise waste or behaviours that support high performance or, or tools that help develop skills in teams. Uh, and, and embed those into the team. So there's, there's a whole variety of these tools that managers and leaders can use uh, to, to engage with their teams and identify improvement opportunities and put them in place. So those are the three things, strategies to, to avoid or minimise waste, behaviours that support high performance and a suite of tools that we can use to put those things in place. So that's, that's essentially what Lean is made up of. Usually what we do with that is provide teams then with a framework for actually putting those activities into place. There are a few things that we believe are foundation tools, if you like, or behaviours. We encourage them to embed those things first of all, and then we build the model from there and look at what are the next levels. Once we've got those foundations in place, you mentioned 5S before, that's one of those foundation tools that we would consider fairly important to deploy early on. Um, and from there, we can go to another level and really start to, to look at the, the long-lasting significant improvements that we can implement. All right. So let, let, let's imagine we've got uh, some of our listeners that are, that are vaguely or intimately familiar with Lean. They are in a position where they're running a, a team of, of whatever size and they decide that lean is uh, something they want to explore, where do they start? What do they do? Yeah, okay. It's another good question uh, as well because what can happen here 
is that they'll reach into the toolbox straight away and not explore some of the, the philosophies that sit in the strategies to minimise waste and the, and the behaviours. Now, uh, that can sometimes deliver some benefits and, and a common one that people will go for first up, for example, is 5S. So uh, a, a set of processes aimed at improving safety and housekeeping and organisation and structure in the workplace and some visual communication. It's, it's rare that you would do 5S and have a negative result, but if it's not done in context without looking at some of the other philosophies of lean and the other behaviours of lean, then it can be a bit of a flash in the pan and it can be hard to sustain. So really it's important to have a bit of structure and, and to have or engage with people with some significant practical expertise to put this in place. It's change, it's about change. And if you're doing any activity with change, as all leaders and managers out there I'm sure will understand, a change can be one of the most difficult things for leaders and managers to move teams through. It is challenging, it's a challenging space. But done properly with some of the other tools that we would introduce in Lean, we can actually dissipate a lot of that negative change expert and, and actually introduce some really positive engagement methodologies that see teams actively pursuing the change rather than resisting it. So that's where we want teams to be. And that's why we don't really want them just to race to grabbing tools like 5S and then putting them in, in an uncoordinated way. So we would always strongly recommend have someone within your team who is very experienced with lean. And if you don't have that within your organisation, engage with a really experienced consultant particularly a consultant who has worked in, in your industry or a similar type of industry and has faced the sorts of challenges that you're facing. Uh, meet with that person. See if it's someone that you can work with and trust and then work, have, have them walk you through the steps that you need to go through. Typically, that is going to con consist of training. I, I'm a strong advocate of training as many people as you can in the organisation. At first with Lean, it doesn't have to be a heavy level of training. It can be fairly light on. We're only talking about a few half-day sessions typically. is enough to give most people the requisite knowledge for them to participate. But if we don't give them the training, they don't have the language to use and they don't understand some of the core philosophies. And while Lean is, is very simple and very accessible to, to pretty much everybody, there are a few things in there that are counterintuitive. So if we don't have an experienced consultant there to, to walk teams through those concepts, to run good practical exercises with them that demonstrate the learning in a way that, you know, particularly with adult learners, they, they, they learn from hands-on. So we use a lot of simulations and things like that to take them on that journey. And by moving people through that journey of, of learning and then we translate it into the workplace, by actually looking for real improvements to do. So part two of the training, really, or the development of teams is to take them on a practical journey within their own context and their own workplace. So we identify opportunities using techniques like value stream mapping to look at the things that don't work very well. And we'll probably talk a bit about value stream mapping. It's a great exercise to do. Um, what will happen during the mapping process is the teams will tell you what doesn't work. 
And then we can create projects that are around the things that teams themselves want to fix. So by doing that, we're starting to engage teams in or we're ticking the box of creating a vision and a need. And once we've got those in place, we're, we're a bit of the way along the change path. All we need to do now is um, uh, give them a bit of a plan and a framework to move forward, which we use by creating project plans based on the DMAIC principle, the define, measure, analyze, improve, control. And the teams then go and execute those with us supporting them. So that's the typical path forward, some training, some mapping of their process, identification of improvement and practical workplace activity to implement those improvements. So by doing that with the teams, do you find it's a really effective and powerful way to engage the people in the team and get them committed towards where the business wants to go? Yes, well, there's, look, there's a few things in there. Having teams understand what organisations are trying to achieve is one of those fundamental behaviours that we would put in place. I call it visualisation of purpose. So one of the things we try and establish as a foundation tool early on is uh, some, some visual systems, toolbox boards, boards that teams meet in front of and talk about how their performance is going that actually tell them, you know, what are the top three, four goals, whatever it is, of the organisation? What does that mean for this particular team? What are the KPIs for this team? How do we actually measure performance? And, and here's the really interesting thing. Most of the time when I would go in to look at a particular team, there will be no performance measures. It's, it's one of the things that organisations do not have a strong discipline around, typically, I find. We would very frequently find that simply by working with the team to understand what they're trying to do and to put some metrics in place that mean something to the team, that the, the team members believe they can influence and that they can understand where the numbers or the trends come from and they know what to do when it goes wrong. As soon as we put that in place without changing anything else, we get a lift of performance because often it's the first time the team's really clearly sat down to work out and understand what good performance actually means for their team. So that, um, that level at first of putting in an understanding of what we're trying to achieve is something we would do at that foundation level. You said something there which, is, which I'd, I'd really like to explore, which is you uh, mentioned that uh, a lot of the organisations you personally go into don't have effective and, and concrete performance measures. Why do you think that is? I don't think that the majority of leaders and managers really understand how important that is. Uh, sometimes I describe it as, and, and see it manifest itself, as leaders and management have a clear idea in their head of what the team needs to achieve, but they've never really explained it thoroughly to the team themselves. And it's only really by going through the process of trying to define that with the team and debating that with the team and coming up with some numbers that the team accepts is a fair measurement that they actually achieve it. Uh, I think they, without the experience of doing it and without the knowledge of lean, they don't necessarily understand how important that is as an impact. I can assure you that once they do it and they see the immediate change in performance, they understand the importance of doing that. It, but it's astonishing to me. I mean, I'll sit in in boardrooms with very senior executive managers and I'll challenge them to write down the top three goals of their organisation. 
and I'll either get um, some things written down that don't align around that table or I'll, I'll just get some very high-level statements such as increased revenues and increased profits. And they're not smart goals. That's, that's something you assume that a commercial organisation is going to achieve. What I'm looking for, of course, is for them to write down how they're going to increase their revenues, increase their sale, increase their margin. Uh, but, but I rarely get that or I don't get alignment across the team. So if they haven't done it at the top level, I'm not surprised that the middle managers and the teams aren't doing it either because they're not seeing that um, as a leadership practice through the organisation. Then you have what I would term as lean organisations, these high-performing organisations that are the big brands that you and I know. And I can assure you they're going through a very sophisticated level of planning each year to work out what their goals are, to work out how they're going to measure that, to look at strategies to communicate that measurement down and up through the organisation. And they catch ball that all the way down through the organisation. So it'll go from the top to the middle management. They'll look at it. They'll feed it back up to the top again, backwards and forwards. It's what we call catch ball. And until they settle on a set of goals that they agree on as being a good set for the year, then that will proceed down to the next level and so on. Until everyone's had an opportunity to contribute to that process. And at the end of that, everyone really understands what we're focused on. And I just think people haven't gone through that experience a lot and, um, and don't really see the value of it. There's nothing really hard about it. There are some simple tools like Hoshin Canary that we can introduce and train people to use that are not complicated tools, but are very powerful in the fact that they just give a structure to managers to actually do this. We know from many studies that have been done that one of the things that differentiates high-performing organisations from all the others is that they are really good at setting just a few clear goals and objectives for each period of time, whether it be a year or a quarter or whatever it is, and they're excellent at executing on that. So they stay focused on the measurements and they stay focused on engaging teams and, uh, and making sure that they achieve what they set out to achieve. So are you seeing, or I suppose is your position that if someone in a, in a senior position adopts the the, the you know the, the idea of lean and says yeah you know, I want to go through it, that it is a mechanism for them to uh, establish the strategy, work out a way to implement the strategy, and then obviously work out a way to measure how they're tracking along the way. Is that where your position is? Well, I'm I'm always delighted if it's a senior person in the organisation that's trying to drive it. It's so important for Lean to provide value for organisations that it has support from the top. It doesn't have to have a huge amount of effort from the top, but it needs to have support. A senior manager who's looking to create performance in an organisation or, or, or increase performance, drive growth in an organisation, really needs to be across Lean because it, it actually is that body of knowledge that we know about how to do that. That's what Lean is. If we're not getting our heads around Lean, that's trying to run a project management company without understanding either Prince2 or PMBOK or, or a body of knowledge about project management. Uh, and, and that would be crazy. In the same way, any organisation looking to drive growth and improvement needs to understand these concepts and how to deploy them. Because without them, they, they will struggle to see the opportunity and they will struggle to have a framework 
to implement change based on, on the opportunity that they see. The senior people in the organisation, uh, and, and you could talk more about this than, than, than I could with your knowledge of leadership and management, but they have position of power. And that position of power is really useful to deploy to go around and to start asking teams how they're going. A senior manager, a CEO, or, or, or someone that everyone sort of knows is a, one of the top brass in the organisation, if they go and start walking around the organisation and stopping to chat to people and, and looking at the improvements that they have made and congratulating them on those improvements and then looking at an area that they think needs further work, but instead of criticising the team, engages with the team to ask them, what are we doing about this bit over here, team? And, and just seeing what the answers are, just that approach of going out there is communicating to the teams what's important for the top management in business. And, you know, we often talk about how do teams know what's important for managers? The managers know what's important, but how do the teams know? And it's in the manager's behaviour and the way they talk about what's important, the way they focus on particular KPIs, the way they continue to visit a certain project. Now, with one of our, our major clients, one of the, the big defence primes in Australia, we have developed a habit of the executive management going on Gemba walks. So a, a, a Gemba walk is, uh, the Gemba is the place where the work is done. So a Gemba walk is those managers going into that area to actually go, what we would call go see, go and have a look. And, and the executive often get caught up in a lot of meetings and they don't make a lot of time for getting out there. And a big organisation like this, particular client, uh, most people don't traditionally haven't seen the executive a lot. Now they're seeing the executive quite frequently because they're making a habit of going to each team and looking at their visual boards that we've set up, talking to them about their results, asking what's going well, but also asking about what's not going well and, and what's getting in the way and asking what they can do to help. This only takes a small amount of the executive's time, but it's extremely powerful in driving improvement. It's handy for everyone in the organisation to know a bit about Lean and to know the language. The executive doesn't necessarily need even a high amount of knowledge, but they do have a very strong role to play in promoting Lean across the workplace and in promoting the improvement. Listen to what you're saying then. It, it, it strikes me that a lot of this really gets down to that leadership commitment and just good leadership practice in terms of going around and speaking to the teams and asking them, you know, how are things going and what's not going so well. Why do you think there hasn't been a, a comprehensive uptake in lean across all industries at all levels? in business? Well, I think right at the moment we're seeing a transition. So we are actually at a transition and we are seeing a much stronger uptake in Australia now. Unfortunately, we are a long way behind uh, most of the other developed nations. I've often considered that or thought about that and, and tried to come up with an answer of why. Uh, I've been consulting this field for 10 years and uh, more than that now, and I have seen a, a very low awareness of lean 10 years ago to a much higher level of awareness now, at least of, of the fact that it exists and what it's attempting to do. And, and certainly we've never been busier as a result of that. I'm not sure what the cause is. It certainly uh, hasn't been hidden from view, 
but perhaps it's the fact that uh, we have not, for the last few decades, been traditionally a strong manufacturing economy. We've relied on other sectors of the economy, services, uh, financial services, mining and agriculture. And manufacturing is the heartland of lean and that's where it's originated from. I think there's a real gap of understanding that lean's not about manufacturing. Lean's about process. It certainly has its roots in manufacturing. And because manufacturing's so competitive, we've learned a lot about good process from the manufacturing sector. But the opportunity for lean is not only exists in all of the other sectors, I would actually suggest to you that in most of them, the opportunity is much larger for lean in those other sectors. Possibly because they haven't had to compete quite so strongly, but certainly because they haven't had the body of people coming from that manufacturing sector where it's much more common for people to have knowledge and moving into those areas to bring that knowledge in. That that has run through a natural cycle now and, and people are learning that, that lean works in banking, lean works in service delivery organisations, lean works in government. Um, 50% of our work is government now because what lean's really about is helping organisations deliver in full-on time the required quality and do it at the lowest possible cost. And the cost in those organisations is often constrained. So lean is the tool to help them really work around how to deliver in full-on time and how to maintain that quality. So I think, uh, yes, it's had a a slow take-up. I think awareness is increasing. I think that managers who get the opportunity to attend some good lean training and some support and implementation are very quickly turned into converts about what it can do. It simply then becomes essential knowledge. We also have to remember something important about how people get into management and leadership, typically. You know, usually when we start out working, we, we, our development is all in the technical skills, you know, how to do the job. And we get better and better at doing that. And then as we move along there, we might get some advanced technical skills along with some planning and organisation. We might be a project manager. We need to lead to negotiate and influence people who don't report to us. And that's, that's great development. And then we get recognised and made into managers and leaders. And not only have people not necessarily been equipped with lean skills, they've probably certainly not been equipped with leadership and management skills either. So then as new managers, they've they've got to learn to delegate. They've got to learn to stop doing the work and they've got to learn to coach people to do it. They've got to learn about change leadership. I think that's very overwhelming for managers. And I think in the absence of having tools, they they get kind of locked in and bogged down there and they don't know that these tools exist that can really help them do all of those things. And by getting a good lean coach, they can get someone who can not only extricate them from that little trap and learn to use tools like the lean tools, and it is a great tool set, to empower teams to be independent to create autonomy around the team knowing what works important and knowing what to do so that they can step back from the doing and start to focus on skills development in their teams, on supporting the team to create better process. If there's, if there's another great barrier to it, it's the fact that we're all busy. We are so busy these days in trying to, to hit those performance targets that we've got that there's no time for improvement. And I would actually say the biggest problem that I encounter with teams is 
that they simply don't have the time to stop doing the day-to-day work and put the improvements in place. They're waiting for this day sometime in the future when they have some spare time. But I think you and I know that day is not coming in a hurry. So what we actually need to do is get them to take the leap of faith that by putting a bit of time into process improvement, they'll win back that time very quickly. In other words, it's a very fast-paying return on investment. If I'm going into non-lean organisations, I'm not looking to get 5 or 10% improvement. I'm looking to get 100 or 200% improvement. And, and managers find it hard to believe that the opportunity exists in their processes for that level of improvement. But time and time again, that's what we're doing for organisations. Usually in our engagements, we're pretty disappointed if we don't get a tenfold return on investment for the organisation. Their numbers in what it pays back to them in the first 12 months. So it's very powerful stuff. And it is something that's probably beyond the change experience of most of those managers. So it is difficult, I think, for them to to see that. They're very focused on the things they know about. They're not focused on the things that are happening in between and failing to support the processes, which is what we open their eyes to. It's what we call the hidden factory. That's a pretty pretty significant statement in terms of the return on investment. It sounds like a big call, doesn't it? Yeah. So for the skeptics out there, how do we how do we go about educating them and showing them that, that that sort of return on investment is a legitimate return on investment and factoring in too that some of those skeptics may think that lean, like you said earlier, is purely for the manufacturing sector. It's not for uh, health or it's not for professional services or not for selling or... Yes, right. So, um, look... There's no training-like experience. Um, the, the approach that we take is is very much one of, of not just training people in the use of a few tools and then saying, see you later. Most of our engagements involve, as I described earlier, a level of training that we would do first up. But in that training, we teach people the philosophy and we teach people the history And the reason we do that is we find, particularly with adults again, that the learning sticks more effectively. If we just list a heap of tools and then leave, it's like every other training. People will walk out and say, well, that was very interesting, but I bet they, meaning the management, never do anything about it. So so I really avoid working that way. Most of our engagements would be, yes, we'll do the training, but we go from the training room into the workplace and we actually start to get hands-on straight away. So I'd like to talk a little bit about value stream mapping. I I mentioned it earlier, um, and it's a really important thing for people to understand what it is and how it works. It it gets confused a lot with process mapping. In process mapping, we're trying to create a detailed diagram of how work can be done. So it's like like a work instruction. It's very detailed. It shows every step and every decision that's being made. In value stream mapping, we're trying to do something different. Value stream map shows how work and information flow across an organisation. Now, the map that we create is useful in itself. One of the principles of Lean is that the value streams, that is the set of processes along which work moves to deliver value to a customer, must be thoroughly mapped and understood. So we can do our maps and create them, and that gives us a nice illustrative drawing of how work and information flow, and that has some use. But you know what the really powerful thing about doing that is? It's the conversations that happen while we're doing it. I've had some sessions 
with teams where we've mapped a process. And as we're going through, the teams start talking about what they do next and what they do next and what they do next. And the teams start arguing. And what we start to see is that no one's really doing this piece of work the same way. There's a huge amount of variety across the team. And when we have that variation, what we don't have is consistent output. It's, it's possible for two people to do things different ways and get the same output, but it's very unlikely. The other thing we'll find is that the team members start telling us all these things that get in the way, that prevent them. And then they start explaining their workarounds and how they've all created these little methods of doing things differently to work around all of the problems. And the managers, if they're not doing the work, they do tend to lose touch with what the teams are doing and how the work is done. And they probably shouldn't necessarily need to know the detail, but they come away from a value stream mapping session often absolutely astonished at the variation that happens and that all of the problems that their team members encounter. And then they'll say to me, oh, I don't know why they haven't told me this before. I've got an open door policy. Well, the problem with open door policies is people don't tend to walk through them all that often. An open door is not for people to walk in and visit the manager. An open door is for the manager to go outside that door and go and engage with the team. And doing value stream mapping opens a manager's eyes or a leader's eyes to what's going on in their team and the challenges they're facing. And it gives you right there on a platter all of these opportunities for improvement. There are many sources of opportunities for improvement, ways that we can see things that can be improved. But value stream mapping has to be the most powerful one in my experience. Uh, we have some fantastic sessions with teams and it's very exciting and we, we walk away from those. The teams walk away from those almost shaking their heads and not even believing themselves that they could have lost so much control of their process. So this is a, this is a great tool. It's a great way for teams and managers to start to see the opportunity and the other thing we've done is we've laid the foundations for change management because who are the people that raised all of these issues? It's the team members. It's not management telling teams to change. It's team members telling management what they need fixed. And this is the reverse. So if, if value stream mapping is where you think uh, people get, the, the I suppose, the, the astonishment factor, is that where you traditionally start the lean consultation process in terms of, of running that activity with them? Right. So that, that would be uh, probably the most common scenario. We would do the training and then we'd go from the training to either 5S. We may do 5S fairly quickly, but we would certainly start to engage in value stream mapping. So our three foundation tools three things that we, or behaviours that we need to see in place before we can really do the others effectively, is we need, need good housekeeping and organisation and layout. So we achieve that through 5S. We need visualisation of purpose. So we'll go through a host and cannery exercise. We'll work with the teams to develop KPIs and put measurements in. We'll get them standing up in front of a toolbox board which has those measurements on and it's then a place for teams to start recording the things that, that they're saying get in the way and they want fixed. And the third thing is value stream mapping. So we would create those maps, we'd put them up in the workplace, and we would create what we call a Kaizen list from all of the issues that the teams raised as they created those maps. So the Kaizen list, Kaizen, uh, it's actually two Japanese words, but we tend to treat it as a single word in English. 
uh, is change for the better is probably its literal translation or close to. Uh, but we, we tend to use, refer to an opportunity for improvement as a Kaizen. So we have a list of Kaizans that come from the value stream mapping and from the teams conducting these toolbox meetings, regular short meetings uh, to discuss performance and issues that get in the way. And that gives us our pool of opportunities. And we can, we can generate upwards of 100 improvement opportunities inside just a few days on site with our clients. That's quite typical. So you, you identify these opportunities. What do, they, what do they do with that? Do they then go off and do it on their own? How do, they, how do people go about actually taking this idea and then doing something more with it? Yeah, well, ultimately, organisations have to do the heavy lifting. We do get people sometimes asking us to come in and systematise their workplace for them. In other words, just come in and uh, tell them what changes they need to make and go away again. We, we don't really like doing that. Um, we advise our clients that that's not likely to be sustainable. They are going to need to make the change themselves and they're going to have to take everyone on that journey. It's, it's just a key part of good change leadership. But we don't leave them on their own. We, we'll help them through that. So what we do is we get them, first of all, to prioritise those Kaizans. So there are a couple of techniques that we use there. But really what we're doing is we're looking at each opportunity and we're ranking it based on its cost, its difficulty and its benefit to the organisation. We might also work out what that cost is to implement it and what we think the improvement is worth. And usually we try and encourage teams to put that in as a dollar value. Not everything has to be about the dollars, but it's usually a pretty good way to convince management that we need to make a change. So once we've determined the, the return on investment and the priority, we'll just pick a few projects, you know, give each team one or two, not too much, we don't want to overload them. They still have their day jobs to do after all. So we give them a few projects to run over a period of time and, and typically look at various little depending on the complexity, but typically those projects will run from one to three months. During that period of time, we will come in regularly and support them through those projects. And as we do that, we'll add in new skills that we haven't taught them yet in the initial training, specific skills, things like Kanban, really powerful visual management techniques that are very simple and robust to control parts supply, for example. It's an extremely effective process and it's almost bulletproof and it gets people away from a lot of the problems that they sometimes encounter when they're trying to do all of that with some sort of warehouse or, or parts management system. It doesn't replace all of those aspects, but it can be useful in certain circumstances. So we'll teach them how to use those specific tools along the journey and put those in place. We'll help teams with problem solving, teach them how to do problem solving and, and move through the typical barriers that come up to projects as they hit them. We'll coach the middle managers or the frontline managers on helping to support their teams through that change. And we'll teach them how to use a project planning worksheet, which is, uh, I think I mentioned before, a DMAIC project plan. So that project plan will define the project. It will establish how we're going to measure the improvement so we can demonstrate the real results that come out of the program. It'll document all of the problem solving and analysis that we do it will state who is going to do what and when with regards to the change that will allow us to project manage and track the change. 
And we'll have a section on control at the end, which is if we do the change and it's effective, how do we make sure it gets embedded permanently in there so that the change we've made is a, is a permanent win for the organisation? So we'll, we'll support them through planning that project and we'll support them through implementing the project. Something we typically do, which I really like and enjoy, uh, and I think the organisation really enjoys it as well, at the end of the project, we get the teams to present their projects back to management. And this is a great opportunity, for, particularly for the executive or more senior management, to recognise the achievement of those teams and also to hear from the teams what's next. What, what do they now see as the next steps? And uh, as well, I think it draws a nice line in the sand. You know, it puts a deadline on a project, gives a team something to aim for. But to get that recognition for their hard work, I think, is absolutely terrific. And teams want to see the score on the board, you know. They want, they want to see that they're actually achieving things. So if we get it all right, we get the metrics in place, we track those metrics or KPIs, they do a project, they see all their KPIs come up, they get the recognition from management, they know their company's performing better. And also along the way, what we started to understand about the human motivation is that people actually really enjoy solving problems. I mean, they go off on their lunch breaks and do a Sudoku or something like that. If we can introduce a bit of time into the normal workplace to solve problems and get rid of some of the stresses and hassles and frustrations, this is how we start to create a more satisfying workplace. Uh, this is actually one of the things I really like about what I do. Apart from the fact that I get to see how all sorts of different things get done, which is fascinating in itself, I think if I was just training people day after day, I probably would have got bored of that some years back. But what I'm actually seeing is, is people coming up to me after transition and saying, it's so much better to work here now. I've got managers coming up to me saying how it's, it's been life-changing in terms of the amount of stress it's taken away from them, the amount of trust that they've learnt to give to their teams, the amount of capability that they've seen increase in their teams and of course it's satisfying for them to be to be achieving more in their workplace and understanding that there are there are new and modern techniques that really work from a psychological perspective that they didn't know before and now these lean tools these lean methodologies have provided them with access to that it's very rewarding so you and i have had some discussions about terminology because we we are currently working with a and talking to one of our clients about uh, the whole lean idea and this whole idea of lean and Six Sigma tend to get uh, either banded together or, or sort of separate or all sorts of different versions of it. Are you able to share with the listeners what your view on lean versus Six Sigma and how they interact and how they work together or don't work together? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I think... What I'll describe is my way of looking at it. They're, they're both great tools. Uh, Lean, as I described before, is, is this body of knowledge around process that, that came out of these studies in the 80s and 90s, the, the Japanese industries that were starting to compete very effectively with American ones. And since then, it's become, by default, if you like, this body of knowledge around productivity. Uh, Six Sigma uh, comes out of the, the Motorola production model. And it's a set of statistical analysis tools that, that they deployed to help them improve their quality. It's a very quality-focused statistical approach. It does get quite mathematical. 
it certainly isn't everyone's cup of tea in that respect. Um, it, it does require a moderate knowledge of mathematics, not, not an advanced knowledge, but you need to be pretty good with understanding statistics. Today, the two have got both confused and blended. And you'll often see, and we'll do it ourselves, often lean Six Sigma courses, which is a bit of a blend of the two. Now, there's nothing wrong with Six Sigma as an approach. There's nothing wrong with lean as an approach. But unfortunately, the fact that they've got blended together has confused the marketplace somewhat as to what they are and who should do them. Uh, typically, I would say the starting point for everyone is lean. Understand lean, embed the lean concepts. And then understand what Six Sigma is and try to understand where the opportunity might be in your organisation. The statistical tool set that's the traditional core of Six Sigma is probably best applied where there's a high volume of high integrity data. So it can certainly be used by banks. It can certainly use, be used by processing organisations and, and the well, FMCGs of the world. It can certainly be used by high volume electronics manufacturers. But if you're a, a bespoke joinery or, or agricultural spraying manufacturer, some of the companies I work for, the, the need for Six Sigma is far lower and, and it wouldn't be something I would place high on their radar. I think the, the other thing that confuses people is there's a lot of qualifications in inverted commas out there called Lean, Lean Six Sigma um, and so on. Six Sigma black belts, green belts. I think a lot of people, and I certainly encounter this all the time, have this conversation all the time, a lot of people think that those belts are nationally recognised qualifications. And if we stick strictly to the definition of what a nationally recognised qualification is, something that's you know, formally recognised by our educational uh, bodies in government in Australia, there are, no, there are no qualifications in Australia that have the words either lean or Six Sigma in them. So I would suggest to people that if they're, they're looking to do that qualification, uh, that they should research who they're getting that from and understand exactly what they're getting and make sure that they have the confidence that that organisation is going to train them comprehensively with, with practical methodologies that are going to be something that's actually marketable. There's a wide range in prices of that training and there's a wide range of what you'll actually get normally for a Six Sigma black belt to have significant value or green belt, there should be some project work attached to that that I would consider to be a compulsory element of it. I think it's important that people understand what they're buying. Unfortunately, there's a confused thing in the marketplace. Yeah, and I think that's led to, you know, that I think part of that confusion has led to us deciding to to join forces and, and offer a four-level certification program which really articulates all that side of things. Yes, that's exactly right. And I think organisations need to be open and honest with their clients about what they provide and, and what it actually is. These things are widely available and I think people are often asking us for them, so I think it's, it's perfectly valid for us to provide a product in that space. But it, it needs to be a very legitimate product with some good content in it. And that's what we've worked hard to produce. So as we get towards the end of uh, end of this interview, if I said to you that you've got to uh, convince the listeners that lean leadership is the way to go, what are your, your, your final sort of, what's your final pitch on lean leadership? 
I think, again, you know, if I draw my own experience, I thought when I got to be a manager, I mean, I started on a factory floor. I was very lucky that back in the early 90s, I got exposed to lean at a time when very few people in this country would have heard about it outside of suppliers into the automotive manufacturing organisation. Uh, I had a new manufacturing manager start work where I was working back in the good old days at GBC Scientific. Uh, her name was Vonda Fenwick, and she brought with her a wealth of knowledge along those lines. And because I had an interest in quality, I, I was able to get into that early and start to understand that. And that started a real interest in me that I pursued um, for the rest of my life from that point onwards. So to get that early grounding in some of those techniques and to get that passion for it early on, uh, it was very fortunate for me because then when I got into management, I got this title, manager of a technical team. I thought that all I had to do was stand in front of that team and, and tell them what my great ideas for improvement were and that they'd go and get away and execute all of those. But, well, that was a pretty good learning management 101 that it doesn't quite work like that. So I started to just put in place some of the things that I knew were good effective tools that I'd seen, you know, regular team meetings, uh, visualising workflow and tracking that, having the teams come up with improvement ideas and training the teams in some of the other techniques I'd seen and seeing them put those in place. And I began to realise that all of those lean activities were actually fantastic management tools and that that was changing the whole dynamic, that if I wanted to get things done, these lean philosophies and lean tools were getting the job done for me in a much better way than me standing there trying to be a great manager, whatever that means. When I went to the next level of management in a, in a much bigger organisation, uh, now I'm managing technical people and an admin team and salespeople and a big warehouse and everything else. Uh, we went through the same process. And at the end of just a few years, we transformed the performance of that business significantly, turned it completely around. And that team won the Lean Champion Award for the Asia-Pacific region for that large global company. And they, they also won uh, best sales of services for the Asia-Pacific region for the same period of time. And that was a remarkable change for a team that, that had, had no leadership for a while and, and was a little bit lost. Um, so, so for me, I mean, that was my own experience. And I don't think I'd have been able to achieve those things if I hadn't have known how to connect teams to effective measurement of performance, toolbox meeting, if I had known how to visualise workflow and push that autonomy and engagement onto the team to actually look after those things themselves independently without me needing to be involved in every step, then to free me up to do some more things. If I hadn't known about value stream mapping, I really couldn't have achieved those things. So I would say, you know, it's just a compulsory tool set. A manager with lean skills is routinely going to outperform uh, from performance measurements wise and they're going to outperform in terms of team morale so uh, that that's probably the key things I can say about it fantastic so I suppose I want to I want to wrap up Chris if people want to find out more about uh, you where should they go well Callista K-A-L-L-I-S-T-A consulting.com.au or look me up, Chris Baker from Callista Consulting on LinkedIn. Should be able to find me fairly easily. Fantastic. And I just want to reinforce to all the listeners that uh, if, if this is something which really resonates with you, please do reach out. 
reach out to uh, to us because you know I'm very happy with the way our partnership with Callista is going, and we're really looking forward to uh, bringing the idea of lean to more of our clients and, and, and sharing the lean philosophy thing. So any last words on lean leadership for listeners, Chris? I think it's a very low risk thing to engage in. Um, learning to use the, the lean tools uh, as part of your leadership skill set, it's not hard to do. It's just a matter of finding a way to get started and get learning. Uh, practice makes perfect in all of these things. Certainly experience helps. It, it's not complicated. It really isn't. A bit of practice always helps, but the, the concepts are not complicated. Okay. Well, uh, thanks again, Chris, for taking the time to uh, uh, share your thoughts on Lean and on our podcast, and uh, we'll talk again soon. No problems at all. My pleasure, Julian. All the best. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergy Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergygroup.com.au. See you next time.